0: uh, We're so grateful the Lord has brought a lot of people that are very talented, musically they're very talented in explaining the scriptures, and so we feel like we're really blessed for that, (coughs) but I'm going to be an apologist real quick here because last time uh, we sang this song, someone asked me, hey, talking about Jesus and charms, I mean... What does that mean? I said, well, in, in that regard, we're not talking about amulets that are designed to bring you luck, right? Um, the definition of charm is any power or quality that gives delight or arouses admiration. That's the kind of charm, of course, we're talking about in that song. So don't worry. We haven't devolved to paganism in our worship yet. But I did have somebody ask me, and you know, that's an honest question. That's typically how we use that that term is used a lot in that regard in our culture. So, all right, well, guess what? Back to Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to see if the third time we can get through the rest of this chapter. Chapter 24 is an extremely long chapter, longest chapter in Genesis, 67 verses long, which is very interesting, really, when you think about it, because it's the entire thing is really about going and finding a wife you would think, well, what's so important about that? That 67 verses would be in there on that? I mean, there's not 67 verses about Melchizedek in the whole Scripture. Why is it so important that we've got to have an entire, not just an entire chapter, a whole chapter, a very long chapter about going and finding this girl and bringing her back to the master, back to Isaac? And I think, actually, that in the big scheme of things, this actually tells us something about how much God values Christian marriage. How much God prioritizes and values covenant marriage. And I'll tell you this, I don't think we value it nearly enough. I think oftentimes we are, sadly... We are prone to um, taking our cues on how much marriage should be valued or honored from the culture rather than from the scriptures. And so we're going to get into that and talk a little bit about that today. Moving through the book of Genesis. So last time we covered chapter 24, we got through verse 23. That was a while back. We're going to pick up at verse 24 today. So we're going to start in chapter 24, verse 24. Hopefully make it all the way through. We will make it all the way through. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 24. And while you're turning there, let me do a little review with you, remind you what we've covered so far in this chapter. We started out, we saw that Abraham made a covenant with his servant, likely Eliezer. um, And he basically said, put your hand under my thigh. We talked about that was actually a euphemism, right? You remember what a euphemism is? It's a big word, isn't it? A euphemism, you use euphemisms all the time. You use them in language, so do I, so did Jesus, so do people that speak every language in the world. They use euphemisms. Euphemisms are when we use a milder term or phrase in place of one that might come across as offensive or shocking to somebody. Right? We do it a lot. Instead of saying somebody died, we say they passed away. Right. Jesus did it with the disciples It actually confused his disciples. Right. He said, hey, Lazarus has gone to sleep. Let's go down there. And they're like, hey, wait, time out. If he goes to sleep, Lord, he'll get better. He's been sick. And Jesus has to tell them, no, guys, he's dead. OK, we're going down there so I can raise him. Right. That's a euphemism saying that someone went to sleep or passed away rather than just saying they're dead is using a euphemism. And that was what was happening here. Right. We said Abraham told Eliezer, put your hand under my thigh, which was actually a nicer, gentler way of saying, you know, put your hand under my loins and swear to me by this. And there's a reason that he did that, by the way. He knows I'm about to send you on a mission and the entire future of my progeny, the future of this covenant. And remember, at the time, that was where the symbol of the covenant was. Right. It was on the unmentionables. And he's saying, you're swearing to me by this. It's kind of disturbing to consider, but it's serving to drive a point home. The future of all Abraham's lineage and offspring is riding on this mission. Abraham and his servant looked at this task with incredible seriousness. And folks, we should be just as serious as he was. And to our shame, we're not. You know what we're really serious about? We're really serious about sports. Really serious about my kid getting a good education really serious about my kid being the, you know, superstar or whatever thing it is they're involved in. But then when it comes to finding a mate, choosing a wise mate, we basically throw them out and say, "Hey, best of luck. Do a good job." That is perverse and wrong. We have our priorities backward. And often it's because we take our cues from the world around us rather than the scripture It is far more important To choose the right mate Than any other decision you make in in life other than Jesus Christ It is by far the most important decision you'll make Other than Jesus Christ Period It is much more important than your sports It is much more important than what education you get It's much more important than where you go, what you do for a job, what career field you're in, where you live, what your home is like, what neighborhoods you camp out in. It's much more important than any of that. It's more important than the car you drive. It's more important than the friends you have. It's more important than the people you do or don't know, or the bigwigs you do or don't know. Abraham and Eliezer realized that. They take this with incredible seriousness, and that's because they're taking it with the proper seriousness. I'll tell you this, and I know I'll get some pushback for that. I don't care. I think if you think you will just let your kids go find whoever, find whatever... And bring home, and I'll I'll, I'll take a look at them. I think you're setting them up and yourself up for a heartbreak. For heartache. If you think a kid at 16 years old knows what to look for in a mate, they must be better than I was at 16. I mean, I know this. Abraham thinks that Isaac might not know the right stuff to look for in a mate. And Isaac was 40 at the time. And Abraham does not say, hey, Isaac, take a bunch of camels, go find you a girl. Instead, he says, Isaac, you stay here. I got a guy that's a little older, a little wiser, knows a little more, and he's a faithful man. And I'm going to give him this task, and he's going to go find the right girl. We don't do that in our culture. That would just be too much, wouldn't it? (coughs) Paul Priest, you really did that. On the whole, here in America, we don't take that task nearly seriously enough, but we should because eternity is riding on it. Literally, in a very real sense, the eternal well-being of our own children, our grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, all of them, Are writing on who our children choose as a mate. It should be something that we think about, we pray about, we talk about with our spouses. We spend time invested in it. It is a worthy endeavor and it's much more important than how well they do in sports. Abraham realized that truth and he realized he was willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary... In order to secure the right kind of spouse for his boy. Notice what Abraham's major concern is, by the way, in verse 3. I'll make you swear by the Lord, the heaven of God, uh, of the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. The most important thing that you do here, Eliezer, is make sure my son does not marry someone that's of this culture. Somewhere, like in the 80s or 90s, evangelicals culture, evangelical, big Eva culture that, you know, we find ourselves in so often. Bought into this notion of like missionary dating, right? Hey, just go find whoever you like and then just bring them to Jesus. Because the thinking was whether they come to Jesus or not is entirely up to you. That's pathetically poor theology. You cannot change a sinner's heart, period. Period. Christ can change a sinner's heart. and You don't jump into a a relationship where you're unequally yoked to begin with. I mean, this is is a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what we've seen. I I wish I could tell you the number of times that either I or Justin has had a conversation with a Christian young man or woman just at our, our high school. They're in a relationship with someone they shouldn't be with, and we say that. This is not a good idea. You, you don't realize something. Well, my friends do. They, yeah, yeah, your friends are unsaved. Those friends that don't know Christ, they're looking for this. You shouldn't be. They're looking for a relationship built on the things you can see with your eyes. Oh, she's got to be good looking. Right? He's got to be the star of the show. But those aren't the things that Jesus says are important. And I promise you it's going to be much more important in twenty years. Not that they were the, the prettiest girl, the homecoming, you know, queen. What's going to be much more important in twenty years is whether this person is selfless, that they have Christ like character. I got bad news for you. As you get older, you will not look the same. I've got a college football picture up on my wall, and one of my students a couple of weeks ago, man, it hurt me. They were like, hey, where are you? And I told them, I was like, I'm on number 94 in there. And they looked. They're like, that's not you. Who's that? I'm like, well, that's who I used to be. Okay? I realize I have grown, of course. I'm I'm better looking now, right? You don't look the same. Yeah, and I told her this. It's like, well, guess what? You won't either. Just wait. Beauty fades. Except for me, Ecclesiastes does say everything has its time, right? I've just haven't—I haven't gotten to my time yet. You know what I'm saying? My time's coming. <laughs> yeah, there, there are going to be things that are going to be much more important than whether this girl was the homecoming beauty queen, or whether this guy looked, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? Oh man, he's so good looking. His muscles are all— Yeah, I remember being that guy too. Guess what? It doesn't stay with you forever, okay? Sad. Is Buff here? He's not here, is he? Buff came over. We did some rolling a couple days ago. We did some jiu And I was thinking, man, I'm almost 300 pounds. And I can remember rolling, just wrestling around with him when he was in high school, just throwing him around, you know, just, that guy's so strong. I tried to pin one of his arms with two of mine. did not get it done. He was like, man, I'm so tired. And I told him that. I was like, man, you better really enjoy these days. Because he was telling me how sore he was. I'm like, you're sore. You're 22, 25, whatever you are. I'm 42. Yeah, those days fade. You know what doesn't fade? The beauty of an incorruptible spirit. That doesn't fade. My wife doesn't look the same today as she did when she was 25. Her beauty has never faded. Her beauty has not been just skin deep. She's more precious to me today than she was. And she was precious to me then. No, Abraham's ultimate concern was that his son would not get entangled with an ungodly Canaanite girl. He knows a pagan girl is not going to teach godliness to his grandkids, she's not going to teach godliness to their offspring. She's not going to be able to continue the covenant because she's not in the covenant. He knows the ungodly spouse is not going to be equally yoked. And that issue should be just as important to us today. It was important enough that Abraham was willing to single out his most trustworthy servant and make him swear an oath on Abraham's own loins. Equip him with whatever he needed and send him out on a journey of over a thousand miles round trip to find a suitable bride for his wife. That's what he was willing to do. They took 10 camels, loaded them down with gold and goods and gifts. And half a dozen or so fighting men and said, go get the right kind of woman. Go find her and bring her back. What a mission. Can you imagine being tasked with that? Don't get any of the Canaanites. We can't look anywhere around here. Nope. Go back to Mesopotamia. That's a a long drive, man. And we're on camels. Go back there and get a girl for my boy. It's that important. By the way, those half dozen or so fighting men that he took would have been anything but soft. I mean, you got a whole bunch of gold and treasure on camels. Right? You've got to keep it safe on the way there. Then you're going to pick up something even more valuable. And that is the girl that this entire covenant is riding upon. And you're going to keep her safe on the way home. These are men who are willing and ready to fight. They're willing to lay their lives down for the bride. And that should be what pastors are today. There should be men that aren't soft and effeminate. And that are willing to lay down their lives for the bride. Because that's their job. That girl is far more valuable than any gold or silver. This task would not be entrusted to the fearful, the soft, the weak. It won't be given to the cowardly, the spoiled, the entitled. It's a lot like pastoring. And that's the job of the pastor as well. To watch over the master's bride on her journey. To protect her, to guide her while she's traveling that treacherous path home. But how would Eliezer know which girl was the right one? How would he know which girl the Lord had chosen for his master? He takes some initiative. Notice something. He doesn't ask somebody else. He doesn't have a discussion with Abraham about it. He takes some initiative. There's something to be said here. About taking some initiative. It is not bad for you to take some initiative to do something that you feel like is right in God's eyes. Okay? I feel like God wants me to start a business for his glory. Then do it. I feel like God wants me to start a school for his glory. Then do it. It's okay to have some initiative. He does just that. He takes some initiative and it's obvious he's spent a lot of time thinking about that. He knows women well. Ten camels full of gold and silver, he knows fathers well too. He takes some initiative and he devises a test. Found in verses 12 to 14, that will reveal some very specific character traits in this prospective bride. (laughs) Not just any girl is going to do. You can't just have a pretty girl. Obviously she's got to be somebody that Isaac finds attractive. But it can't just be some pretty girl. She can't be afraid to get her hands dirty. She's going to have to have a work ethic. In essence, she's going to be married to the master of a ranch, right? A huge ranch. By the way, that's not an environment today for someone that's pampered and entitled. It sure wasn't thousands of years before air conditioning, you know, refrigeration, antibiotics. This is going to have to be a girl that's tough. But she's also going to have to be a girl who is chaste, modest, discreet, faithful, What kind of shame would it bring upon the uh, Eliezer and Abraham and the rest of the covenant if this prospective bride would turn out to be an adulterer? And yet she'll have to be caring and hospitable. How can you find someone with all of these traits? What kind of test can I devise to be able to see glimpses of these character traits? She's got to be strong enough and tough enough for country life and yet hospitable enough To serve the king of all the heavens and all the earth. How in the world will I know when I see her? So here's the test he devises. He knows all the hard-working young women are going to be there at the well. Doing the menial, insignificant things it takes to serve their households faithfully. He knows there's a certain segment of the population of young women who will not be there. That will be the pampered elites. Those that are very wealthy, they're very pampered, they're very entitled. They wouldn't have to do that kind of menial work. Their household would have servants that did it for them. And he specifically avoids that type of person. I think that's very interesting. So He knows the well, the town well, is a good place to start the search. He devises a test to really try the character of this young woman. And it's going to require a young woman who possesses uncommon hospitality, who is strong, tough, And unafraid of hard work. And who's willing to go out of her way for some tired strangers in need, even when it's unannounced. She doesn't get to prepare. Imagine that. It's like a pop test, right? It's a test that students love the most. I mean, if you want to see panic in students, right, we'll let them come into class and say, Okay, take out a piece of paper, number one to ten. Right? I got anxiety. I get it. Been there. Right? But that's what he does. She doesn't get to prepare. She doesn't know it's coming. She doesn't get to make sure this is going to be her best day. It's just another day, a day like any other. Eliezer wants to know, what is this girl like on a day-to-day basis? Not when she has three weeks to prepare. Not when she, as it were, gets to put her best foot forward, right? What do you like in the daily? And what happens? Well... Rebecca just happens onto the scene. I'm sure it was just coincidence that she's coming out to the well at the same time that Eliezer is coming up to the well. She just happens onto the scene, and unbeknownst to her, she is in exactly the right place and at exactly the right time. She doesn't realize it. And she doesn't just pass the test, by the way. She blows it out of the water. She goes so far above and beyond that the Bible says Eliezer is left staring in wonder. He's marveling at her. He had prayed that a young lady would just offer a drink for the camels. Hey, Lord, this is how I'll know. She's going to come up. She's going to offer me a drink. (coughs) And she'll offer me a drink for my camels, too. That's a lot. That means she's going to have to redraw her water, right? I told you this last time. I said the, the, the average pitcher size of that day was around two and a half gallons. Basically, because you had to have, you wanted as big a pitcher as you could basically manage, and we got bigger than that. It's just too big and and heavy to be, you know, it's, it's unwieldy. So that means she's going to go down and draw this thing. She's going to put it up on her shoulder, and she's going to then, which is heavy, by the way, you know, water is roughly eight pounds per gallon, so it's not, you know, it's not insignificant. She's got to pull this thing up, and you know, she's putting it up on her shoulder and walking it all the way home. And she's going she's gonna to put it down and give him a drink and. And pour the rest out for her camels or his camels, which means she's gonna to have to go redraw water. She's gonna to have to do that's 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 real work. He says, This is gonna be the test. And instead, she says, I'll give you a drink, and I'll water your camels until they're done drinking. Ten camels that are thirsty? How much can they drink? A lot. I've read that there, uh, read stories about really dehydrated camels that, I'm not kidding, that have drank almost 50 gallons in three minutes. Not 30, three. It's like sucking down a fire hose, man. How much did these things drink? I don't know. But I do know that it drank enough that she must have made enough trips that her brother comes to see what's going on later, right? It says Laban came out to the well. My guess is he goes, hey... Rebecca's going to go down and get water, right? She should be back shortly, and she doesn't come back, and she doesn't come back. And he's like, what in the world is going on with this girl? So it goes down to the well So it took a while. I don't know how long she had to draw. I don't know how many trips she had to make. But I do know this. I know she worked hard enough that Eliezer is sitting on the side, literally staring in wonder. I cannot believe this. So she finishes, right? We're down to verse 22. Eliezer stayed silent in wonder. We would say he was dumbfounded. He's literally shocked in the silence. I can't believe this is happening. God is being overly conspicuous on Eliezer's part. Have you ever needed that? Has God had to be just over the top for you before so you know, yeah, this is what God wants me to do? You know you feel that inner leading, you know, that inner peace, that still small voice. You know this is what I'm supposed to do. And then you start wondering. Start second guessing. You say, you ever done that? I'm sure I'm the only person here that's ever done that. So God has to go over the top to show you, no, this is what I, this is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do. Right. You're on track. You're on task. Right. Because Eliezer's thinking there's no way this can't be real. I just want to make sure you don't miss it. When she finishes the task, he's blown away. The servant's blown away. He immediately gives her a nose ring. That's about one fifth of an ounce of gold. In case you're wondering that's a pretty sizable nose ring it kind of borders on gaudy okay fifth of an ounce that's that's a big ring about six grams of pure gold that i promise that's a nose ring that everybody else is going to notice okay he also gives her two bracelets they're 10 shekels each that's about a quarter pound of gold per bracelet the common people in this day and age didn't even see gold and she's wearing quarter pound on each wrist if if people missed her on the way to the well, and nobody didn't notice her on the way back instead I mean, if you went down to the well and you drew water for some stranger and he sent you home with sixty or seventy thousand dollars worth of new jewelry, you'd probably notice that right? like it's a good idea to water those camels, man, right? I'm thinking Laban saw that and went. I'm going to come water camels tomorrow, you know. (laughs) He liked money. Eliezer, but think about this. He puts all that gold on her. He still doesn't even know her name. He has to ask her, who are you? Right? Who are you, you vision? He doesn't tell her the reason that he's there. Why? Why wouldn't he just divulge it all right there? Well, there's a reason. Eliezer understood authority, and we do not. Eliezer understood this girl is the way she is largely because of where she comes from. I need to go talk to her dad before I whisk her off and whisk her away. Why? Because her dad is her proper authority. Let's pick up at verse 24. We'll follow the story from here. So she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Malchus' son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feet enough and room to lodge. You can come to the house tonight, right? That's what she's saying. <coughs> then the man bowed his head down and worshipped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. There's something big going on. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. He realizes the whole time I've been going on this trip, I haven't noticed it. I can't perceive it. But the Lord is the one who has been overseeing it all. He brought me here on the right day. He brought me here at the right time. He brought me here that I might meet you. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Think of the impeccable timing it took. The Lord had orchestrated everything perfectly. These guys came at more than 500 miles one way. And they got to the well at just the perfect time to meet Rebecca. That's the first girl that he talks to. He's thinking when I get there, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to engage all these different young ladies and they'll probably say, sure, you can have a drink. But who in the world, who in their right mind is going to say, sure, you can have a drink and I'll I'll water your camels, too. Right. He's thinking he's going to have to test all these people before he finally finds the right one. And he's prepared for that. And instead, it's the first girl he talks to. How impeccable is this timing? The Lord had orchestrated everything perfectly. He was working on Eliezer and his men's behalf, even though they couldn't feel it. He was working on Rebecca's behalf. She wasn't delayed that day, or maybe she was, but she came out at the perfect time to meet them. Just by happenstance, I'm sure. Just pure coincidence, I'm sure, right? They might have had no idea in the natural the Lord was working on their behalf, but he was. Actually, he wasn't just working on their behalf. He was working on the behalf of the son and his bride. That's the typology, right? He's working on behalf of his son and his bride. These men were just the servants he's using to carry out the mission. That's what pastors are too. If you missed this morning's equipping hour, man, you missed it. Justin said some things that were really hard to hear, but they were very true. And that was basically this. Your job is not to have a big name. Your job is to be faithful. You know what? In this story, we never do find out who these mighty men are. Even the servant is not named in this chapter. I wonder why that is. It's the same today. I should not be working so that everyone can know who Paul Wilson is. It is entirely, Paul Wilson is an entirely unremarkable person. And it's unnecessary for the body of Christ to know who Paul Wilson is. It is necessary for the body of Christ to know their Saviour and to know him well. My job is to be faithful to that. It's not to have a big name that everybody can remember and everybody talks about how wonderful I was, you know, 300 years after I'm gone. They write books about that is not the purpose. There is one who sees what I do on his behalf and he's the one that I will stand account to one day. There's lots of people that have had books and articles and nice rosy things written and said about them who are absolutely despicable. And people write these things about them because those people are despicable. Hey, but that was my buddy. I liked him and you should too, even though he's absolutely heinous and wicked. No, man's opinion means nothing. Man will hold people up high who have no right to be there. And that was what Justin was talking about this morning. There's only one that has the right to be there. His name is Jesus Christ. How impossible do you think this t- this task must have seemed? Can I ask you that? Have you ever thought about that? If you're Eliezer and you're about to set out to Mesopotamia with some really hard, tough men and a bunch of camels and gifts, what are you thinking about this task? We can't find a girl around here. We're going back to Mesopotamia. This is not going to be easy. Let me ask you something. Are you in a similar situation today? The sad part is, in, in Reformed theology, we have a theology that really like prepares us for suffering. You know what it doesn't prepare us for? Success. You know, we, we get our minds prepared for action and prepared for, hey, you know what? This could go poorly. And that's true. It could go poorly. But you know what else? It might not. The Lord might give you Success. What a rousing response, <laughs> right? We, but we're scared of saying that. You know why we're scared of saying that? Because we've, we've, seen, we've seen the prosperity gospel preached. We've seen what it looks like when someone says, hey, if you're a Christian, everything's going to go well for you, and it's going to be nothing but roses, and that's nonsense. And obviously, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that. That's nonsense. But it is also true that the gospel will not be Stopped. And you may do something for the Lord to advance that gospel. And he may give you success. He may give you success as a businessman so that you can forward the missions. He may give you success in starting a Christian school so that you can help discipleship. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Maybe you're in that situation. You look at an impossible situation at work or in your marriage or your career or your family. You can't see how in the natural. How could this thing ever ever work? How could it be resolved? What are the odds? I've felt that way in my own family. I've got a little brother that I love deeply. He's a couple years younger than me. And he's lived life on the edge. And I've, I've had seasons where I've just really prayed for him. And I've had time. I'm really serious about this. It's shameful to even admit this, but it's true. I've had times in my life where I've prayed and prayed and prayed for him and then just finally throw up my hands and go, it's It's hopeless. And then have a text message from him at 3 in the morning asking me about God. Go figure. What does that show me? What should it show me? What should it show you? If you can't see how in the natural this thing could ever be resolved, maybe you've forgotten that you serve a God who goes ahead of you. Maybe you've forgotten that you serve a God who prepares your way. Maybe you've forgotten you serve a God who's always at work who never sleeps and never slumbers? Who's promised never to leave you or forsake you? Maybe you've forgotten you serve a God who's promised to work all things for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. How in the world could Eliezer be successful in this mission? Because God was at work. God was going forward and doing the work of the mission. Why? He was working it out for good. To those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Maybe you've forgotten you serve a God who specializes in trading ashes for beauty. He specializes in subduing wayward hearts. He has the power to change any situation because he has the power to change any heart. There's no such thing as a heart that's beyond God's reach. And there's no such thing as a situation that's beyond God's reach because of that. I read an article this last week about, there's was a girl that got a lot of press last year or the year before because she won Miss America. And she was like the first Muslim Miss America. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Guess what? This week she converted. She's a Christian now. I shared that one. No, no heart is beyond the reach of Christ, which is why we preach his word. It's why we tell his word to people that are hard. Now, that guy, he'd never be. Do you know how hard he is? Do you know how much he hates God? Do you know the God he hates? It does not intimidate God that this man is rabidly anti Christian. Because when that man lays down on his bed at night, he still can't escape the Holy Spirit. I'm glad somebody was willing to do that for me. Maybe we've forgotten the God that we really serve. And maybe we need to be reminded of that. Let's go on. Twenty nine. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Oh, good old Laban. This will not be the last time we see Mr. Laban. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban and Laban ran out to the man by the well. And so it came to pass after he saw. Notice this. It's when he sees all the gold, all the money. Right. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And he heard the words of his sister, Rebecca, saying, thus, the man spoke to me. Then he went to the man, right? After he saw all of that, then he goes to the man. And he stood by the camels at the well and he said, Oh, come in, oh, you blessed of the Lord. Excuse me? You don't know him. Blessed of the Lord. Cause he's got money, wealth, power, dignity. This is the fanboy. Come in, oh, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So we're seeing something about Laban here. Probably he's going out to the well because he realizes his sister should be back by now. He wants to know what in the world has taken this girl so long. And when he sees everything that's going on, he realizes this guy has some serious wealth. Look, you ain't wearing quarter pound gold, pure gold bracelets if you don't have serious wealth. Okay? Just letting you know I don't have any of those laying around in my house. Okay? No, he knows this guy's a mover and a shaker. This guy is somebody important. He's dignified. And all of a sudden, Laban's a fanboy. He sees the wealth and the prestige of the troop, and he's falling all over himself to capture their favor. Good thing nobody does that today. You ever seen something like that before? Man, I have, and it's sickening to watch. It makes stomach turn. Selfishness of it. Self-seeking of it. Laban really knows nothing about them at this point. He doesn't know if they're godly or not. He doesn't know if they're lying or not. All he knows is that they've got a lot of money and they seem dignified. There's a lot of camels here. These guys have wealth. They're powerful. He knows there's lots of gold on his sister and there's ten more loaded down camels. In other words, there's more where that came from, right? And he wants to capture their favor as he wants in on it. I want to be dignified and wealthy, too. I'm going to ride your coattails, fellas. I think it's likely he's being driven by greed and the pride of life here. And we're going to see that later. Those character traits will show up again later in Genesis, as most of you know. Let's move on. 32. Then the man came to the house. He unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of his men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, and he said, I'll not eat until I've told you my errand. The guy is excited wouldn't you be you would be too if your LEAs are like you're excited about this thing I got to tell you what's going on And so they said speak on Verse 34 and he said I am abraham's servant That's the first time they know that I am abraham's servant the lord has blessed my master greatly And he has become great like that would probably be the understatement, right, at the time. Like, hey, you just came in on ten camels and you put all kinds of gold on. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, we know he has obviously become great and wealthy. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels, donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. Now my master has made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But instead, you'll go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. So I said to my master, perhaps this woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. That says something to me, by the way, about Abraham's faith. Abraham, as we have watched through the book of Genesis, Abraham is growing in his faith. And he comes to the point where he sends Eliezer out on this crazy mission. And he says, don't worry about it, buddy. God is going to go before you and prosper your way. Which is why Abraham can have the confidence to say, Yeah, she won't come back with you. You're free of your oath. Why? Because he knows she's coming. He knows she's coming because God. Ah, it's hard for me. His faith is in the Lord, it's not in this man, it's not in the girl. It's in the Lord who's going in front. It's in the Lord who's doing the work and preparing. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. Verse 41, you'll be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you'll be released from my oath. 42. And this day I came to the well and I said, Oh, Lord, God of my master, Abraham, if you'll now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I'll stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says, drink. And I'll also draw for your camels. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I'd even finished finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder. Which is actually an important point, which I talked about before. She let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll also give your camels a drink. And so I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. It's important that she brought it down from her shoulder I said this before, but just by way of reminder, there was a couple different... If you had somebody you didn't know, there's a couple different ways you could share your water from your pitcher. You don't want to spoil it for your household, right? I mean, they didn't understand how germs worked, but they knew diseases were communicable. You don't know who this person is. You don't know what they have or what they're carrying. You're not going to just allow them to lip up to your jar and drink out of your family's water supply. So you have one of two options. One is the lazier way. Right. It's already on your shoulder. You just let this person come really close to you and you tip the water and they just kind of waterfall it. They just drink out of it. Right. But that was seen as kind of improprietous because in in the business of doing that, they would be close enough to you that there would be, you know, frontal bodily contact. And so that was kind of seen as not real discreet, but it was a lot more work to take it down off your shoulder and load it back up, take it down, load it back up. Right. But she makes haste to take it down. She takes quickly. This is not even a thought. Takes it down. She's probably going to pour it out. He's going to drink it out of his hands. Hey, I'll get some for your camels too. So he could see she's a hardworking lady and she is chaste. So I drank and gave the camels a drink also. 47. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Naor's son, whom a bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord. And bless the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you'll deal kindly and truly with my master, please tell me. And if not, tell me, so I might turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, we're not going any further. I don't want to even sit down and eat with you guys until I know, am I in the right place or not? I can, um, I can relate with this. Okay, when I was, um, my wife and I were seeing each other like the first, I think after the first time we went on a date. I, I, she's like, before she goes back up to OU, I know, it's sad. It's sad. It's okay. It's okay. She came out from among them to be separate, says the Lord. But anyway, before she went back up to OU, uh I had brought a road, I had this tiny little house, you know, I had a house that was one step better than a lean to, but I had my huge library in there and all my apologetic stuff. And then I showed it to her and I said, basically this is me, this is where I'm going. This is what my life is about. I want to serve the Lord. And if this thing if this thing goes the distance, I want you to know. I don't ever want you to be later on down the road going, Hey, this isn't what I signed up for. Kind of freaked her out. It's like, uh, hey, we just had dinner, man. Like, <laughs> it ain't that serious yet, you know. But the truth of the matter was, you know, here was this godly girl who's beautiful, and I know I I can't just have this six month relationship. And my heart is going to be intertwined with you. So get in or get out. And that's kind of what this guy's doing right now. Hey, I'm here on business. This is not just a pleasure visit. This thing is not just about let's have fun in the meantime. I'm serious about this. Okay? You know why marriage gets a bad rap today? Because we have a whole bunch of people that want to pretend. They want to play with their relationships. Hey, let's just have fun for the meantime. No, that's a serious business. Your heart and who your heart is wrapped up in is serious business. Don't be playing when it's real business. Right? And that's what this man's basically saying. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing comes from the Lord. We can't tell you good or bad. We can't say anything to you. God's done this thing. We can't tell you no. Right? 51. Here's Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. Now, it's probably possible at this point they realize all those camels has the dowry too. I'm not going to lie. It's not uh, uninfluential to them, I'm sure. Look at all the gold she's wearing. Dude, there's ten more camels loaded up. We know what that's about. Hey, uh, we're here. Want to know if your daughter can go back with... Wait. Uh, Sure. It's from the Lord. Leave your stuff. Let's make an exchange, right? They know what's going on. They're not stupid. That was the custom of the day. They know there's a serious dowry to be had in this deal. Like I said... Eliezer seemed to knew women. He knew dads as well. My, my wife got really embarrassed when my, when, first time I, I went over to meet her folks, she's like, listen, when you meet my dad, he's going to ask you a lot of questions. Okay. No, seriously, he's, he's going to like ask you all about like, hey, what do you do? Could you support a wife? Could you do all this? And I'm like, I, I remember, I literally was having this discussion with her last night. I remember her telling me that and I was like, So? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I will one day when it's my daughter. You know who the only people that are scared of those kind of discussions are? Those that aren't prepared to care for a wife, who are not prepared to be a provider for a wife. That's something we don't talk about, but we probably should. That's our job. It's part of our job as men. Part of our job as a husband. Paul says is to take care of those in your own household and those who do not. You're worse than an unbeliever having denied the faith. That's pretty serious. Being a provider for our homes is a serious charge. And we have a, today there's like an idea out there in our culture that that's just kind of an afterthought. Hey, I'm ready to get married because I really want to be married. Okay, have you prepared yourself to be married? Well, yeah, I like some girls. Well, if it was really that important to you, wouldn't you prepare for it? It's the same thing. We say, somebody says, I want to be a pastor. Really, have you prepared for it? Well, yeah, I mean, I read my Bible and stuff. Oh, have you prepared for ministry? Have you really invested in this? How much time have you spent in this? How much of your life are you willing to devote to this? If you really care about doing something and doing it well, you will be willing to prepare yourself for it. Today we just, we just think it should be taken for granted. I like a guy, so I'm ready to get married. Are you? Are you ready to be a wife? Ready to be a mother? Can you take care of a household? There are a lot of parts of taking care of households that very few ladies know anymore. And there are a lot of things about being a provider and a protector of a family that very few men take seriously anymore. That's sad, but that's true. It shouldn't be this way. My brothers, it should not be this way. 52, it came to pass when Abraham's servants heard these words that he worshiped the Lord, he bowed himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that they might go. I think that's reasonable. I mean, wouldn't you think so? Some guys show up on your doorstep some night unannounced and basically they're saying, hey, we're we're taking your daughter. This is not like today where you can just FaceTime her if you, you miss her, right? There's not a Facebook account. Like you're going 500 miles away. We may never see you again. Or if we do, it might just be once or twice again. Give us a few days to say our goodbyes, right? That's basically what they're saying. And he's saying this. No, this is of the Lord. This is important. Let me go. Let me go back. This thing is of God. He said to them, don't hinder me. 56. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me back that I might go to my master. So they said, we'll call the young woman and ask her personally. Basically, they're saying, you know what? We don't like your idea. You don't like our idea. Maybe we should get the girl. This is all about involved in this. (laughs) Hey, maybe somebody should ask her opinion on the matter. (laughs) Crazy, right? They said, what do you want to do? Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. 59. So they sent away Rebecca and her, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. I feel like I should be saying this to my daughter like every other day or something. I love the last part. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. That's in the Bible. It was very serious to them that she'd have a family. It wasn't just an afterthought. They were serious about it. It was expected. (laughs) Today it's become an afterthought. Ah, oh, we want you to be really influential. You know, if you have a family, that's good too. But maybe you can have some fur babies instead. You know, dogs are not babies. I'm just throwing it out there. And I love dogs. I got some. But they're not babies. Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer-Lei-Roi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who's this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It's my master. So she took a veil and she covered herself. 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her to his mother Sarah's tent. It's saying something because, remember, Sarah's gone. That tent was all he had left of her. She became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let me sum it up by saying this. I think I've poked at this enough this morning, but there's a lot in this chapter A lot of details that seem extraneous, that seem superfluous, unnecessary, but they're not unnecessary. They're telling us just how seriously God takes marriage covenant. He takes the family extremely seriously. He takes marriage extremely seriously. And we should too. It was serious enough to Abraham that he's willing to give his very best to find a suitable mate for his kids. For his kid And we should be the same. That's going to seem very odd to the culture we live in. If you value marriage and you value preparing your children for marriage, you will be odd in the culture we live in. Because you should have been spending all that time and money playing sports, making them good football stars, you know. Baseball or basketball or softball or whatever. God takes marriage very seriously, and we should too. We should too. We shouldn't be playing around with something that God takes that seriously. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that what you've shown us today in your word will be an encouragement to your people. Let it build us up. Let it wash our minds to be more like Christ so we can better reflect him in a lost and dying world. I pray you to open doors this week, Lord, that we might be able to share your gospel with others. To share what we've learned with others. That we might be able to point others back to you and to your word. Keep us all safe, Lord, until we meet again. May you be the overwhelming thing in our mind. Bring our minds back to you again and again and again. We thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.